Welcome to Hope for Life, a broadcast ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington, bringing you hope for life through the teaching of God's Word. Today, Pastor Lunsford is continuing his sermon series in the book of Hebrews. If you would like to follow along, you can open your Bible to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. One of the saddest elements of war, of any war, and certainly of this Iraqi war that we have been through and are still finishing, is what has come to be called friendly fire. It's a shame to see anybody die in warfare, but especially when we might look and say they didn't need to die because it was their own troops who misfired a weapon, something came wrong, and they died because of their own ammunitions, not the enemy. A fairly strong effort was made during this last conflict to come up with some other term, some other thing than friendly fire, because anytime you die, it's not friendly. And they worked real hard to avoid using that term. This is a sad thing and a serious thing. And as we come to God's Word today, we come to perhaps the, one of the most serious passages of Bible in the Scripture, which also speaks of friendly fire the fire of God coming on his own children. As hard as for us, as that may be for us to believe, we need to understand that God warns us severely about certain kinds of behavior. And uh, this passage is a severe warning to us, and it is also part of what the Lord's Supper commends to us in 1 Corinthians 11, as we'll see. Follow as I read Hebrews 6, 1 through 8. We've already considered the first three verses, and we're just going to consider verses 4 through 8 today, but we want to get the full context. Therefore, leaving the, dis the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection or maturity not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying out of hands, of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed whose end is to be burned." By many accounts of the authors that I read who commentate on this passage, this is one of, if not the hardest passage in the Bible to accurately and confidently understand. And so as I share with you today the fruit of my study of almost a month, I do so humbly 
and prayerfully that God will help us to grasp this as he intended it. The first thing that we need to think about is who is being addressed. Some people have read this passage and said, oh my goodness, it's possible for us to lose our salvation. Well, we need to make sure that we understand this rightly because if that's a possibility, it's a serious thing. And if it's not a possibility, we need to understand what else is taught here. So who is being spoken to? There are several descriptive phrases here, and I believe that these are not a series of steps in godliness, but facets of a single truth. The thing that makes a diamond sparkly is all of the flat sides all the way around, no matter what the shape is, all of these many facets, and as you turn it, it sparkles. I believe this is one single truth with many facets being used. He could have used even just one of these phrases, I believe, but he uses many of them to create great emphasis and clarity. And the list begins like this in verse 4. He's speaking of those who were, number one, once enlightened. All of the words in this phrase are in what is called the aorist tense in the Greek text. And what that primarily indicates is a completed action. It's often thought of as a past tense because if something is completed, it has to have already happened. And so in that sense, it is a past tense. But these are things that are completed. And so when we ask the question, what does it mean to be once and for all enlightened? Well, God says that those who do not know Christ as their Savior are walking in darkness. And 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says that God enlightens us by giving us the knowledge of Christ. Ephesians 1, verses 15 to 18, in those verses Paul says that one of the results of faith in Christ is enlightenment. In Hebrews 10, 32, our author here speaks to the same folks saying, remember the former days which after you were illuminated... This is a synonym for salvation. I believe all of these are synonyms for salvation. When you come to Christ and believe in him as your savior, it is the result of God turning on the lights in your head. If we were not walking in darkness, we would all obviously accept Christ much sooner, but it takes God's illuminating us and we are able to come to faith in Christ. These the folks who are being warned here, the category of folks who are being warned are folks who have been illuminated by God so that they might believe in Christ. The next phrase in the list says this. They were once enlightened, and then it says they have tasted the heavenly gift. What is the heavenly gift? Well, the most obvious answer is the gift of salvation. Ephesians 2.8 says salvation is a gift by grace, or it is a grace gift. It is freely given to us. You cannot earn it. It feels good to us to want to do something, to participate in the process. God says, no, it is a free gift. Now, we read the phrase there, the word tasted. Many people have looked at these phrases, and there are, the word tasted is used a couple times, and said, well, this is a passage written to some people who have sort of dabbled in Christianity. They are folks who come to church, they've never known the Lord, and they're part of the church, they come to the fellowship dinner, they, uh, they put some money in the offering, uh, they come a number of times, they are tasting Christianity. And to our way of thinking with that word tasting, that's what we would think of, because 
if we wanted to indicate somebody who was fully involved, we'd say they, they ate a full course meal or something like that. The only problem with that is the same word for taste is used of Jesus when he tasted death for every man. Did Jesus just dabble in death? Did he just stick his toe in the water? No, he died. I believe the word tasted is used here because of the, the literary motif which has to do with food. And if we go all the way back to verse 12, he says, you are only... Need, you are at a point in your spiritual life where you need milk and not solid food. And he's using this idea of comparing the word of God. Parts of it are milk or simple truth. Parts of it are meat or solid food, hard truth. And the problem with these people is they had tasted, that is, they had come to know the Lord, but all they wanted to do was keep tasting that basic milk of the word. They didn't want to go on and eat the full course meal, which is the whole thing. I believe that's why he's using the word taste here. He is not trying to indicate to us that they just took a little dab of it. You see, how much faith in Christ does it take to get saved? Just a little. <laughs> because the greatness is on God's part, not our part. If you have to exert a lot of faith to get saved, then somehow you are the one who's doing the work. No, all we have to do is receive his gift and say, God, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Like that sinner did in the time of Christ. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They have come to know this gift of God of salvation. Number three, these people had partaken in the Holy Spirit. The word part for partake here probably is best understood by our English word partner or partnership. They had come into partnership with the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, verses 9 through 11, we read these words, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He also who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit. The simple truth of the Word of God is this. Unbelievers do not have the Holy Spirit. Believers do have the Holy Spirit. If these people had come into partnership with the Holy Spirit, they were Christians. It's one of the great privileges of the Christian life. I do a lot of counseling, and one of the debates in the Christian counseling world is, can we counsel an unbeliever from God's Word? Well, certainly anybody who lives by God's Word will benefit from it. The problem is, it's awful hard to do, if not impossible, without the Holy Spirit inside giving us the strength and the power. That's the privilege that's ours in Christ. We can have God's Holy Spirit working in us. These people knew that kind of partnership. Number four, it says that these people had tasted the good word of God. This is another synonym, I believe, for salvation. Romans 10 teaches us that salvation comes to us through our hearing and believing of the word of God. 
First Peter 1.23 tells us that when a person is born again, it is from the incorruptible seed of the word of God being planted in their life. They had tasted, they had taken in God's word, and it had saved them. Number five, they have tasted the powers of the age to come. What is the age to come? Well, what's coming next after our age? Well, we know the tribulation time is coming, but I believe that's a reference here not only to that, but to the whole future in which we will know the power of God on this earth in a wonderful and complete way. Dr. Robert Gromacki says this, the knowledge of God and the moral transformation of the believer into Christ-likeness are contemporary indicators of what life will be like when Christ returns to the earth. When you look at a Christian and think, boy, there's a, there's a good person, there's a godly person, someday the whole world's going to be filled with people like that. Now, wouldn't that be something? You go to read the newspaper and it'd be all good news. They wouldn't be talking about terrible things that have been happening in Tacoma or Iraq. It would all be about all these people are trying to help each other out. Things like that. They had tasted, when you get to see what God does in people's lives, that is the power of the age to come. And number six is the bad news. Verse six, your translation may say, if they fall away or if they have fallen away, there's no reason to translate it that way. It is the same kind of word as the rest of these phrases. It should say, this is written to those who have been enlightened, have tasted, have become partakers, and have fallen away. The real question we have to answer today is, what does it mean to fall away? Turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we have the beginning of a series of letters written to a series of churches which were real churches that existed in the time this book was written. And I believe by the inspiration of God, not only tell us messages to those churches, but tell us messages to the various conditions that Christians can get into and churches can get into. And in the very first one, I believe we understand what it means for the Christian to fall away. Chapter 2 of Revelation, verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write this. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works. I know your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear with those that are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. And you have persevered, and you have patience, and you have labored for my namesake, and have not become weary. Now if we stopped right there, we go, man, those are the kind of people we want to hang with. These were separatist Christians, the kind that not only live for the Lord, but they reject those who don't live for the Lord in terms of their fellowship, and look at verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. It's the same root word as our word in Hebrews 6. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent 
and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. This is a very severe warning that I believe parallels the warning of Hebrews 6. All believers begin their life in Christ close to Him. When you accept Christ as your Savior, your sins are forgiven, you're with the Lord, you know what it means to have your guilt removed, you're joyful in Him, you're close to Him. The world is wonderful. And in the case of these Hebrew Christians, I believe the thing that caused them to be tempted to fall was persecution. We may face some persecution. There may be other things that tempt us to fall. We could summarize it this way. Once we're close to Christ, there is the potential for something to tempt us to move away from him. It may be a desire for something that's not ours to have yet, which would be a good desire, but the timing is wrong. It may be our desire for something that's sinful. It may be the challenge of people who are criticizing us for our faith. There could be all kinds of things that tempt us to think, well, oh, I'm going to put a little space here between me and Jesus. And these people had done that. They had pulled away from Christ. They were close, but they fell. The word in Hebrews means to, to fall down beside. They had fell away. When we fail to follow God fully, we fall away. Sometimes we, if I could say this, we might just fall a little ways, and we recognize through the guilt of the Holy Spirit that we've done so, and we get right back with Him. And, and, and may I say that I think that should be the norm of the Christian life? None of us are going to live perfectly. The key thing is when we realize we've pulled away, just to stop right there and say, oh, I'm, this is wrong, Father. I'm sorry that I've sinned. You said it's wrong. It's wrong. And we get right back together. That's the norm of the Christian life. We might call that just tripping. But when we let that go, and we let that go, and we let that go, this is what happens to our life. And you know what? Jesus never moves. There's an old joke that I love. It's so poignant. Husband and wife, married for 25 years. They're driving down the road one day, and the wife says, you know, when we were first married, we used to sit right together in the car. And, oh, boy. And you know what the husband says? I didn't move. God doesn't move. When you think God has pulled away from you, just, just remember this moment right here and say, oh, that's right, God didn't move. God never moves away from you. You always move away from him. And I believe the people that are spoken of in Revelation 2 and Hebrews 6 were those, the warning in Hebrews 6 is to those who were starting to get away. They hadn't gotten that far away yet. The people in Revelation 2 were, were moving farther away. But he still says to them, there's time. Repent. To repent is to change your mind. You've been going this way, now turn around and get back together with God. The message, though, is this, folks. Notice this in, in Revelation 2. Look at verse 5. Read it again. 
remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the first works, or else. Ever say that to your kids? You clean up your room or else. And they say, or else what? They want to know what before they decide whether they're going to obey. They're kind of weighing the options. They're thinking, I can take a little whipping. I don't want a big one, but I'll take a little one, you know. God says, or else I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. Now, this text is written to a church, and I believe what it means to a church is that somehow God would completely remove his blessing from a church. I, I don't understand that Scripture doesn't talk a lot about that, but it's a severe warning. He says, you cannot go on living apart from me. At the risk of being critical... I'll take that risk for not being clear. May I just say to you that Harvard and Princeton and Yale were originally Bible-believing seminaries? I mean Bible-believing seminaries. Do you understand what it means to have your candle removed? See what I'm saying? And I believe the same thing can happen to a church. And the same thing can happen to a Christian. That's what Hebrews 6 is trying to tell us about. Turn back to Hebrews 6 and notice here, <clears throat> he says, if, if these people who knew the Lord and fell away, if this happens, it is impossible to renew them to repentance. In Hebrews 6, he's talking about the extreme degree. We might say Revelations 2 is kind of the moderate degree, and Hebrews 6 is the extreme degree. If you come into this condition and fall away, it is impossible to be renewed to repentance. And in verse 7, we get this illustration for the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed turn with me to 1 Corinthians 9 I believe 1 Corinthians 9 defines this rejection for us the same word is used and it will surprise you who was concerned about being rejected 1 Corinthians 9 24 the Apostle Paul writing saying, do you not know that those who run in a race all run? The Christian life is often in Scripture compared to a race. You start it when you believe in Christ and you finish it when you meet the Lord face to face. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate or self-controlled in all things, now they do it to obtain a, a perishable crown, but we, us Christians, do it for an imperishable crown. Therefore, this is how I run, not with uncertainty. This is how I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest, when I have preached to others, I myself should become rejected. It's the same word. 
I myself should become disqualified, or in the King James word, a castaway. The Apostle Paul says we should be running the race in the way that it takes to win it. That's the same message that's going out to the Hebrew Christians. See, they were running the race like I used to compete in athletics. See, I, I, I love to be on the swim team or, or the tennis team because I like to be with guys and I wanted to get a letter jacket, but I didn't really want to win. Oh, I wanted to win. I wanted the glory of winning. But you know what you have to do to win in athletics? You have to decide, I'm going to work hard. Saw a special about the Mariners a couple of weeks ago. A guy named Bloomquist, who's from Gig Harbor or somewhere over there, went to South Kitsap High School. And he's looks to be, you know, late 20s. And he said, uh, you know, really, he said, I wasn't the best player on our baseball team. We had a good baseball team. They won the state championship. And his coaches now, of course, say, well, we could see something special in him and whatever. He made the team as a sophomore, as a 15-year-old. But he said, you know what? When I was 15, I decided that I was going to become a great baseball player. I was going to work hard at it. And you know, they brought some of his buddies to the baseball game and he met them and you look at them and you look at him and there's not that much difference. You know what the difference is? He decided he was going to run to win. And that's the great message of Hebrews 6. Have you decided to live the Christian life in an exemplary, winning kind of manner? Or are you satisfied to just show up for practice? Just do the least you can to be on the team you know, try to stay out of the coach's line of fire. Don't be too bad, but don't be too good. Just kind of be there. That's what these Hebrew Christians were doing. And, and the person who writes the scripture by God's inspiration says, cut it out. He says, don't you understand that if you continue to drift away from the Lord, there is going to come a point at which God says, you have crossed the line, that's it. Now again, he's not talking about losing salvation. Do you think the Apostle Paul was afraid of losing his salvation? He's the one that Romans chap wrote Romans chapter 8. There is no condemnation toward those who are in Christ Jesus. What can separate us from the love of God? Can height or depth and so on? Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Do you think the Apostle Paul thought he was going to slip out of God's hands and go to hell? No. Uh-uh. But he knew... He could misstep and become a castaway, no longer useful to God's service. M.R. Hahn, famous Bible teacher of a generation ago, wrote this, It is possible for a believer who has gone a long way on the path of service to fall by the wayside, and as a result, the Lord in chastening sets his ministry aside, and he becomes one of God's castaways. He, ha he is not lost in salvation, but his usefulness is ended, and he will bear his judgment at the judgment seat of Christ when all the believer's works shall be tried with fire. Turn with me back a few pages to 1 Corinthians 3. Here is the friendly fire that we spoke of earlier, 1 Corinthians 3. Here is part of it, starting in verse 12. Now, if anyone builds, in the Christian life, we're committed to build on the foundation of salvation with our good works. And again, not earning salvation, but uh, showing our thanks to God and worshiping Him through our works. 
Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's works will become clear for the day, the day of evaluation, will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. God says there's going to be a day when you stand before Jesus. I don't know if it's immediately after your death. I don't know if he's going to wait until this age is done and bring us all together. I don't know. But it's called the Bema seat, the judgment sheet. It, it's parallel to what Paul says about winning a, re, a reward. They called this the place where the judges sat the Bema seat or the judgment seat. And after they ran a race in the ancient Greek games, they would come up to the judge, and when they were the winner, he would put a laurel wreath on their head. That was the perishable crown. It's the judgment seat. It's not a seat of... Of, uh, of, of punishment, it's not a seat of, of anything of that sort, but it is possible for the Christian to come stand before Christ and he puts the fire of his righteousness to our life and what happens is, zip, it's burned up. Or if it's gold and silver and precious stones, it is only refined further. Only the bad things are burned. And I guess it would be accurate to say that in every Christian's life, there will be some Gold, silver, precious stone. Who would have the very least of that? Maybe the thief on the cross. <laughs> he accepted the Lord and died. <laughs> and, and, and that happens today, doesn't it? So there's very, very little chance for any gold, silver, precious stone, any treasure in heaven to be deposited. M.R. DeHaan goes on to say this, this was the thing that Paul feared above all things. Paul did not fear losing his salvation. He was secure of, he was sure of that, but he feared losing out on reward and the crown. He feared that after a lifetime of preaching, he might be in a careless, mo he might in a careless moment succumb to the flesh and be set aside. If you listen to the news lately, you've heard about that in real life. Only not with a Christian, with a football coach. Football coach squanders a good part of his career. I don't know how much, I don't know, you know, these days, he'll probably be with some other team in six months. But he gets this big job and this big salary and goes to an immoral place and spends a bunch of money and gets fired. What we ought to be shocked at as Christians is that the secular world is willing to fire a guy for that. Moment of pleasure. I, I would think a lifetime of regret. I mean, I don't know about him and his wife. Forget his job. What about his wife? I have a book here that I won't show you the cover because I don't need to defame the man in person. This man was a famous Christian in the Puget Sound region. Wrote a good book on biblical counseling. And he's no longer in the ministry. He is completely set aside. He is rejected from service because of the immorality of his actions. And I could tell you about others. I could tell you about some lay people, some significant laymen in churches 
who threw away their ministry for some immoral actions. God takes righteousness seriously. That's the great message of, this, of, of, of Hebrews 6, of Revelation 2, of 1 Corinthians 9. And turn with me to 1 Corinthians 5. Let's see how seriously God takes righteousness. 1 Corinthians 5. In, in the Corinthian church, they had some sinning going on. 1 Corinthians 5, 4. Well, in fact, I want to start in verse 1 because there's, there's two lessons for us to learn here. It is actually reported among you that there is, sexually, there is sexual immorality and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up or proud and you have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Folks, we really need to check our attitude about sin and about tolerating it in the church. And I'm not criticizing you any more than any other church. I'm not criticizing me as a pastor more than any other pastor. But you know what? Did, did you catch the, 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 the feeling as this was written? It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Do you get the shock in the Apostle Paul? Are you shocked when you hear about sexual immorality in the church? I'm afraid we've been dumbed down by the world around us. And not only by the immorality of the world around us, but by the political correctness. Oh, we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Oh, yeah! Yeah, I want to hurt some feelings. Because the sorrow of God leads to repentance. And I honestly believe that if people are living in immorality, it is bad for them. I don't think it's just that God said it's wrong. I think it's going to hurt their life. And if you haven't lived long enough to figure that out, you come and talk to me and I'll help you understand. But look what he says to do. Verse 3, he says, You should have been crying and praying and mourning so that this person would be removed. Verse 4. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Holy smokes. That's friendly fire. Do you get the impression that God takes this seriously? Above everything else, that's what I want you to understand today, is God takes sin seriously. That's what hell is about. Does God send people to hell just because he doesn't have anything else to do with them? No, he hates sin. And in Hebrews 6, he says, Christian, you can come to a point of no return. Um, in, a, in a little bit, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 11. It talks about the point of no return in the context of the Lord's Supper. 1 John chapter 5, verse 16, speaks, or for, uh, verses 14 through 17, speak of a sin unto death. It's talking to the Christian. The sin unto death. 
Let me just say this, and, and we'll talk more about the chastening of God as we work through Hebrews 12, but let me, let me try to summarize today's truth into this. I believe there are three levels of chastening with God, and, and this is my synthesis of the scripture, so don't write this down as the absolute truth of God. As I have tried to perceive not only today's truth, but other truths in the scripture, number one, the first level of chastening is this, God lets go. Frankly, I, I'm as scared of that as I am of anything. I do not want God to let go of me. You know what Romans 1, that, if you know Romans 1, you're thinking homosexuality, it talks about the terribleness of homosexuality. You know what the terribleness of Romans 1 is? It's God letting go. And it's God letting go about, in about three or four stages. And the final stage of God letting go is completely letting go, and the result is people fall into gross sin. When you choose to live an unrighteous life, God says, you want to live on your own? Okay. <laughs> and that is the chastening of God, because when God lets go, you make bad choices. That's the first step. God lets go, and perhaps with that, I don't know if it's the natural cause of your sinful choice or if God actually puts something in there that, that gets your attention that we call discipline or chastening. Number two, the second level of chastening is what Paul calls being cast away. To lose your youthfulness. To be the pastor of a church of 6,000 people and go to zero. And to never be heard from again. Boom, you're done. Live the rest of your life regretting your sinful choices. Number three, the third and most severe level of discipline is God bringing us home through death. Now, as I thought about Hebrews 6, I've had to ask myself the question, how does God keep somebody from repenting? I think there's only one thing that keeps you from repenting, Christian. That's death. Because in 1 Corinthians 5, they said, church, get together and put this guy out of the church. When he says, hand him over to Satan, I believe what he means is excommunicate him from the church. Tell him, look, you have no part with us. Put him out. Do not fellowship with him. He goes on to say, don't have anything to do with people who live in sin other than to be a witness, to be a missionary. Now, the, the reason I have great hope is because in 2 Corinthians, he has to tell these people, hey, this guy repented. Bring him back. That's what church discipline's all about. The reason we need to go to people and say, you can't be a member here if you're going to live that way is because God wants to use that Oh, wait a minute, I've really stepped over a line here somewhere. And then they say, yes, I'm going to repent, and they get right with the Lord, and that's a marvelous thing. I must tell you, it doesn't happen a lot. But it happens, and it's a wonderful thing. And so these people were still learning about Christianity, and Paul says, hey, the guy repented, bring him back. I don't think you're ever past repentance until the day of your death. Now, should that be a cause for you to ease up? Oh, no. Because I think what the truth is here, folks, if you live in sin, the day of your death may come sooner than you think. There's nothing scarier to me than to see a Christian willfully choose to rebel against God. And when you see it, you should warn people. You should open up Hebrews 6. You should open up 1 Corinthians 5. You should open up 1 John 5. And you should say, oh, friend, don't do this. You are headed across a line from which there is no return. 
See, this, this is mimicking the example of God and his people in the Old Testament. They came out of Egypt with a great, tremendous miracle and, and more miracles across the Red Sea and, they, and, and more miracles at Mount Sinai. And then they get all the way up. They send out the spies and the spies come back and go, wow, it's a great place, but there's giants there. And the people go, oh, no, we can't do that. It's too much for us. And God says, boom, you're not going. It's over. Whoa. You mean God has a limit to his patience? Yes, he does. And I, I fear that in the last generation, in my generation, we've preached about the grace of God so much, we've forgotten to preach about the impatience of God or the, the limit to the patience of God. Turn with me back to Hebrews 6 as we, as we conclude this. Again, Perhaps a key thought is this. God takes godliness seriously. It is unthinkable that God would continually overlook our continuing sin. Why do we think that God's up in heaven going, well, gee, I sure wish they'd quit doing that. Oh, boy. I wish there was something I could do. Like a parent wringing their hands. Oh no, there's something God can do. And, the, and frankly, the, the truth that ought to scare us a little bit is that he's going to do something. Turn with me to Second Peter 3. I want to try to end on a positive note. Friends, I know this is a, this is a harsh sermon. I know that. And I don't apologize for it because God wrote the truth, not me. But I want to end on what I would consider to be a positive note, and that is a note in which God tells us the solution to this problem. In 2 Peter 3, he's been talking about the end times and the times that are coming and the terrible the deception of false teachers that's coming. And starting in 2 Peter 3, verse 16, we read this. And Peter is talking about Paul, kind of interesting. He says, as in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. Isn't that interesting? The apostle Peter says, now, I know some of the stuff Paul writes is hard to understand. It's the meat of the word, Peter is telling us. Which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction. You want to know? where false religion comes from, it's because when people read something hard to understand, they go, well, I'm just going to do this with it because it suits me. They twist it. And the result is their own destruction as they do also the rest of scriptures. You, therefore, here's what you do, beloved. Since you know this, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. Here's the positive thing to keep you from being led away from the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. When I first got right with the Lord, that's a verse that I discovered. And I said, that's what I need to do. I need to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Alexander McLaren, a famous preacher from some time ago, wrote this. 
one main reason for the defects of our modern Christianity is that the average Christian cares so little about his Bible and has no real deep grip of nor absorbed interest in the great truths that it sets forth. Friends, that is exactly the problem with the Hebrew Christians. They said, oh, you know, I know enough to be saved and I'm on my way to heaven. I'm not going to worry about that other stuff. And as a result, they were living in sinfully immature conditions. And God says, stop it. Grow up. May God help us walk on his narrow path through his word and his Holy Spirit so that we never know the pain of being past repentance. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us and saving us and loving us enough to show us the stick. The stick that you're going to use on our bottoms if we don't live righteously. May we live in a righteous fear of you. And even more so, may we develop our love life with you so much that we don't need to worry about being away. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Hope for Life, the broadcast teaching ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington. You can learn more about our ministry on the internet at www.ferndalebaptist.com or you can contact us by mail at First Baptist Church, P.O. Box 69, Ferndale, Washington, 98248. Telephone 360-384-3111. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday mornings at 1045 a.m. Our prayer is that God's word will give you hope for life.